0: Oscar Wilde was famously and entertainingly quoted as saying, I can resist anything but temptation. I can resist anything except temptation. That's the only thing that I can't resist. There's something about being human that just kind of resonates with that that comment. There's a story that's deep down in our bones as human beings. A story as old as the garden The story when life was lost to death because the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, our ancestors, fell to temptation. They sinned, they broke their relationship with God, and they traded life away for death. We all know the story, and we all know that our place in the story is right there alongside Eve, right there in Adam. Some people know what it's like to resist temptation... But everyone knows at one time or another what it's like to be tempted and to fall, to give in. As we look into Proverbs chapter 7 this morning, we're actually going to see that old story played out one more time in front of our eyes. Even though Proverbs is to us a very old piece of writing, Proverbs chapter 7 and and the example of temptation in it actually feels relatively modern. Uh, It feels like it fits in with our days, especially compared to that old story back in Genesis 3 in the garden. There's something about that story of Adam and Eve that's so much bigger than us and explained how we got here, but, but Proverbs 7 reminds us that the reality of temptation is something that doesn't just belong way back to the garden and the serpent and the fruit, but it's something that we all face day in and day out in our lives. So the father who's been giving such careful instruction to his son so far in Proverbs chapter 7, he, he wants to warn his son that temptation is surely going to come. And so he gives some teaching and he gives them an example, a vivid picture of what it looks like when someone falls to temptation. So it's a warning that all of us need to pay attention to this morning because every one of us is tempted. Before we go any further, let's stop and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word because it is truth, it is light that shines in the darkness. We thank you that you graciously reveal to us the things that we need to know, the things that we hide from in the dark. And Lord, we pray that your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, would be the light that shines through this word this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you open our eyes and soften our hearts, open our ears so that we can hear your word and that we can respond to it in faith. We trust that you will be the one who does the work as we spend this time in your word. Please use it for your will and your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Proverbs chapter 7, please turn with me there if you haven't got there already. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And that concludes the positive, uplifting portion of chapter 7. It's all downhill from here. So since we want to end on a positive note this morning, we are going to tuck these verses away and come back to them and and end with a a closer look at them. But right now, what follows, beginning in verse 6, is the closest thing to an extended narrative or a piece of story that we have in the whole book of Proverbs. The father is going to tell his son something that he has seen happen probably a little too often. It's the story of a young, clueless guy who ends up falling to the charms of seduction. I know what some of you might be, th- might be thinking right now. Yes, this will be the third sermon inside four weeks to hit on sexual sin. I know what's in Proverbs 5 and 6. I listened to Pastor Dan's sermons while I was away. Something tells me that Solomon, in all of his wisdom, probably knew what he was up to when he wrote Proverbs 5, and then Proverbs 6, and then Proverbs 7. He had probably heard, I'm sure he had heard, about how his father, Israel's great king, David, had fallen in adultery to his mother Bathsheba. He had probably seen his older siblings fall into the same kind of sin. Solomon might even well have recognized the same kind of weakness in himself. And so he goes out of his way to make sure he's warning his own children about these dangers. And there might be some here today who are currently being tempted in the area of sexual sin. Any kind of lust, pornography, affairs sex before or outside of marriage, maybe hearing about it twice in the last month hasn't been enough to do something about it. Maybe God in his wisdom has three doses in a row for a reason. But for those who struggle with temptation in other areas, if your battle is somewhere else, then this chapter also applies to you this morning. In some ways, in Proverbs 7, the lens is zoomed back out a little bit from where it was in 5 and 6. The details that were present in chapter 5 about protecting the sanctity of marriage, about how that is the good place to experience sex, those, those details aren't really in view here in chapter 7. And neither are the warnings about the dangers of what happens when you fall into adultery and, and the social consequences that are warned against in chapter 6. What we're going to read in chapter 7 deals particularly with the nature of temptation itself. And it could be any temptation. If you were here last week, you might recall that Pastor Dan's last point was that God has a special dislike for the sin of adultery. This is because he often uses the language of adultery as a way to describe how he feels when his people run around on him spiritually and try to look for their fulfillment anywhere outside of their relationship with him. So there's no sin that you can commit that's not somewhere deep down at its heart actually spiritual adultery against the God who made you. And so there's no temptation that can't really be addressed here in chapter 7. So listen to this vivid portrayal that's meant as a warning about how temptation finds us where we're vulnerable and will take us down if we're not prepared to stand. Verse 6. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. Today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. We're going to go back through those verses and point out some of the things that we can learn about the nature of temptation that we need to know if we're going to stand against it. The first thing that's worth noticing is in verses 6 to 9, look at the target that temptation chooses. I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. This guy is not really the kind of hardened unbeliever that Proverbs elsewhere calls a fool. And he's not the evil and twisted person that Proverbs would call wicked. He's just kind of clueless. He's young and naive and he's probably not willing to listen to any of the advice and any of the warnings. He's got nothing better to do than walk through the wrong part of town at the wrong time of night. Most of us have probably met this young man in very different incarnations in a lot of people that we've met in our life. Many of us have probably spent some time being this guy. I'll just go and take a look at what everyone's talking about. I can handle it. If I get in over my head, I can always just leave anytime I want. Sound familiar? It's worth remembering that by the end of the chapter, this guy will be dead. The really ironic part is that he picks a time of darkness to go out and be where he knows he shouldn't be. He goes at night because it makes him feel safer, right? Right? He knows what every natural-born sinner knows to do from early childhood. You don't do the things you shouldn't be doing when people can see you. But sadly, this young man is miles away from being safe. Going in the dark does not ensure his safety. It actually puts him in more danger than he could ever imagine. Look at how quickly things change in verse 9. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Do you notice how fast things go from being a little bit dark to total darkness? It's striking language. As you read just that one verse, it feels like someone has their hand on the dimmer switch of the only light in the room. And it's just getting darker and darker quickly. One of the devil's greatest advantages in tempting us to sin is that the desires within us want to be tempted. Who knows how many thousands of temptations in every man and woman's life could be successfully avoided straight away if we just avoided the darkness, if we were just a little bit more willing to stay in the light. Tell someone else where you're going to be on that night. Tell a friend that you know you're going to be around some people or you're going to be around some opportunities that are going to be hard for you to resist. Whatever you do, don't keep to the shadows for the thrill that comes from going it alone. Twilight turns to evening, turns to full darkness faster than you think. If you put yourself in a situation where you know you're going to be tempted, and weak, you're really just doing Satan's job for him. And you can't afford to make yourself an easy target for temptation. Next, look at verse 10. Behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. It doesn't take long for someone who's looking for trouble, to find trouble, and oh boy, what has this guy found? We learn two things about her from the description. The first is her clothing, which is designed to give everything away. She's dressed in a way that suggests, I'm yours for the taking. But hold on a second and compare what we learn about her clothing with what we learn about her heart. She is wily or guarded in heart. Her clothing tells one part of the story, but not the whole story. Her intentions are hidden from this guy. In that way, she's very much the opposite of him. His intentions are hidden from nobody. He thinks going out in the dark hides his motives, but it actually just sort of pathetically broadcasts exactly what he's out for to everyone. But she's the opposite. She publishes one thing, but she keeps her heart hidden from him. One commentator puts it this way, it will be an unequal contest between the simple youth and the wily tempterist. Temptation does not play fair. Remember, the serpent in the garden was described as crafty, and he still is. Temptation doesn't play fair. Next up in verses 10 and 11, temptation lies in wait everywhere. She's loud and wayward, her feet don't stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. Peter writes to his flock to remind them in 1 Peter 5.8, be careful, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring Lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is absolutely tireless in his work. He only has one job to do. And if it's not him, then it's his army. And if it's not them, it's our own sinful desires within us. And the pressure from the world outside of us that provides ample opportunity to be tempted almost anywhere, almost any time. And I should add this, almost any sin. It's very easy to start thinking about your sin as one particular area that you might struggle in. That's one of the hardest parts of the battle because there are so many ways for us to indulge our own selfishness, for us to put ourselves in front of God and in front of the others in our lives. We need to be watchful. Charles Charles Spurgeon once said that the man who only repents of this or that glaring sin has never really repented of sin at all. We've got a lot more work that Jesus wants to do in our lives if we're ever going to look like him because that's the end goal, right? To look like Jesus. There's a lot more areas than that one to work on in your life. Some temptations are going to walk right up to you, like in verse 13, and kiss you straight on the lips. You're going to know exactly what you're being challenged with. But some other ones are going to operate on different levels. They're going to be sneakier. And If you aren't a little bit worried here, then I guess I'm not doing my job properly. Because temptation lies in wait everywhere, and if we ignore it, then we're just like the senseless young man. The next thing you need to know about temptation is that temptation mocks or hijacks or subverts holiness. Temptation mocks holiness. If you can be made to think of God's ways and God's laws and God's character and the things that he wants you to learn and do in your life, to somehow think less of them, then the doors swing wide open to all kinds of error. Notice in verse 14 that the woman claims to just be coming now from offering sacrifices. The text actually calls them peace offerings. These would be a particular kind of sacrifice made at the altar where some of the meat of the sacrifice gets burned up, some of the meat goes to the priests, and then some of the meat actually gets taken back home by the person who brought the sacrifice, and they get to eat it over the next day or two. For those of you who just can't wait to read all about it, you can find the guidelines for this particular kind of sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 7. The rest of you could just be glad it's my job to read it and take my word for it. But the point is this, peace offerings were intended to represent the relationship that someone has with God because God has graciously provided a way for their sins to be dealt with. It's offering some of the meat back up to God and then bringing the rest back to eat yourself was a way, is a picture of sharing a meal with God, of having peace and fellowship with him. It's worth mentioning that there were no drive-through value meal double cheeseburgers at the time. Getting to eat a meal of meat was a pretty rare occasion. It was a big deal. So when this woman says, hey, guess what? I've just offered peace offerings, she's telling him, come with me and you'll get a feast of meat. Not just any meat, but a fellowship meal with God. We'll make the evil, adulterous thing that we're about to do okay because we'll do it at the same time that we're going through our religious motions. We'll make God a part of the evil thing we are about to do. Before you draw the conclusion that this is such an utterly unthinkable act that you could never do yourself, let me ask, have you ever found yourself deceiving your own conscience into making yourself feel okay about sin? This feels so good. This makes me so happy. I have such a good reason to be doing this right now that surely God would just want me to go ahead and do it. Right? Surely God's so good and he doesn't want to hold anything back from me that he would want me to do this. And you know, it is true that God wants the absolute best for you. It's also true that his laws and his wisdom are there to point us towards what's actually best for us. Temptation mocks holiness. It tries to replace God's good design with a second-rate imposter and make you feel it's okay. Next up, verse 15, temptation flatters. She says, now I have to come to find you. I've been seeking you eagerly, and I've found you, just you. Temptation flatters you. It makes you think there's a special reason why all of the usual warnings and rules, they just don't apply to you. This point's really simple. I don't have much to say beyond this. Temptation's a dirty liar. You aren't special. Wait, wait, okay. At least not in the sense where all those, where you can safely ignore all of those warnings. You aren't special in the way temptation says you're special. You are special in the sense that God made you for a special relationship with him. And he's given you his word, his wisdom, even his very son, so that you can have that relationship with him. You just aren't the kind of special that that late night dial a infomercial says you are. That would be a lie. And if you believe it like this young man believed it, it's going to cost you an awful lot. All of that brings us to the last qualities of temptation that we see, and they're probably the most important too. They sum up the rest in a lot of ways. All of this early talk from this woman has been to get to the real offer here in verses 16 to 18. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, come. Let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves in love. Now it's all on the table. Here is the offer. Temptation to sin at its core always offers this your desires will be satisfied. You will get everything you want and need. Temptation promises what it cannot deliver. Temptation promises what it can't deliver. It can deliver some things that in the short term are pleasurable or beneficial or even useful but in the end temptation promises that you will find what you've been looking for that you'll be made complete that your search will be over that you'll find satisfaction and it cannot make good on that promise it's a lie, it can't because you were made for God and you will only find satisfaction in him Temptation promises what it cannot deliver. That's one of the two big ones, and it goes hand in hand with the other one that you see in verses 19 and 20 there. The other one is this. Temptation suggests there will be no consequences. My husband's on a way on a trip. No one will ever know. You can take what you want. There will be no cost. There will be no consequence. Okay, when your sinful heart is longing to believe, when you want to believe the lies that temptation is feeding you, when you're tempted to believe the empty promise that no one will ever know, the real lie that you are being fed at that very moment is nothing else than this. God doesn't exist. In order for there to be no consequences for no one to ever know, it's necessary that God must not exist. Because if he did, he would know. Right? If God does exist, then he already knows what's in your heart. The lie no one will ever know is brutally and deeply atheistic. Psalm fourteen one, The fool says, where? The fool says, in his heart, there is no God. He doesn't have to say it with his, li- with his lips, but if he says it in his heart, that kind of belief in your heart that God's really not there comes out in all sorts of foolish things that we say and do and think. You have before you on the page one vivid picture ...of what it looks like when temptation visits. I just want to read you one other one... ...that has a lot in common with this picture in Proverbs 7. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer... ...writing about temptation. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire... ...which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh... All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money or the possession of the beauty of this world. At this moment, God becomes unreal to us. He loses all reality. The only, only the desire for the object is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. I believe that's true. I believe that every sin at some level comes down to a lack of faith in who God is and what he said and what he's done. So this whole tsunami of tempting arguments that this lady has been pouring over this young man has flooded over him. Flattery and empty promises is just washing over this clueless young man. And then look what the result is in verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, He does not know that it will cost him his life. All at once he follows her. It's not a gradual process like he thought it would be. He thought maybe there would be time to pull out, to change his mind, to back up, but it's all at once. He does not know it will cost him his life. He thought it was safe to ignore the warnings, to walk around her corner at night, and even before he knew what was happening, the cost was his life. That's how fast it happens if we're unprepared. And this seems to be the main point that the father wants to impress on his son here in this chapter of Proverbs. Look at verses 24 to 27. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the word of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chamber's of death. There are many, more than we care to think, many mighty ones that have fallen, but no matter what temptation promises, this lady's house is the way down to death. And if you know that, if you understand that that's the cost of sin, then maybe, just maybe, you'll be willing to listen to the advice I was giving you at the top of the page. So let's go back and read verses one to five, and hopefully take them to heart. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, say to wisdom you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. What stands out here is just how important we are supposed to treat these commandments. This good wisdom. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Do you know what the apple of your eye is? I actually always forget. I get this wrong every time. I think it's something else. But it's, it's referring to the pupil in your eyeball. The most sensitive part of your most vulnerable organ in your body. Okay, our daughter Lily has reached a very touchy phase without having yet acquired the ability or the desire to be gentle. And like most children, she likes faces. And just the other day, she was delighting herself in poking at Daddy's face. I had to tell her to stop. Daddy did not want to be touched in the eye. And she really thought about it. She stopped, and she decided to try it out on herself. And I had a hard time not laughing as I watched her try to touch her own eye. Because she couldn't. It was like watching an adult try to put a contact lens in for the first time. Her finger got closer and closer, and then all of a sudden her reflexes kicked in, and the eyelid just closed and protected her eye naturally. That's what keeping my teaching as the apple of your eye means. Treat it like something so valuable and so precious. It's like the part of your body that gets a standard issue built-in defense mechanism. Now, I suspect that when it comes to the area of preparing to face temptation, that too many of us think of God's Word as some kind of emergency rescue kit only to be reached for once trouble arrives. That's not the advice we receive here. Treat it as precious. Bind it on your fingers so you're aware of it all the time during the day, all the things you do in your day-to-day business. Write it on your heart so it's with you and a part of you. If you can learn one thing from the example of the simple young man in this chapter, it might be that you will not have time to come back for God's word when temptation shows up. If you don't have it in you already, it'll be too late. Charles Bridges said, man must have his object of delight. If wisdom is not loved, lust will be indulged. Think about that. Man must have his object of delight. You're going to take the thing that you really want, whatever it is. So if it's not wisdom, it'll be sin. In other words, something is going to capture attention so much that you've just got to have it. It's either going to be something bad or something good. And the solution, at least the way verse 4 puts it, is to spend time with your sister wisdom so that you won't chase after that other girl, the one who's tempting you away from God. And I've been wrestling with this chapter all week and learning from it and struggling with what's the best way to share and communicate what it's saying. Here's a question that might help clarify things. What is it about these commands? What is it about this wisdom, about God's word, that is able to keep you from falling to temptation. When you think, and hopefully you do, when you think about the fact that God's word is able to keep you from sin, how do you imagine it works? Do you think about the way God's word is truth and it exposes the false promises of sin? We spent a lot of time doing that this morning. That's definitely a part of it. Do you think of the equipping work that God's work does, God's word does, of the Holy Spirit taking it and using it to help you When you're tempted, that's definitely a part. But God's Word does more than just instruct and equip. We need to be armed in those ways, but we need something even more. And think about this if the lie that temptation whispers whispers in your ear is this God does not exist. If that's the lie, then one of the most important things that spending time in God's Word and His commandments does for us is it reminds us that God does exist. What wisdom teaches, first and foremost, is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, because God does exist. And then we know that sin does have its wages, but the result is death. And because God does exist, then we know that we were made for him. And we're only going to be fulfilled in him. More than that, God's word teaches us that because God exists, there is help in the battle. If it's a battle that you cannot win, which we can't on our own, Praise God that there is help coming. The God of our salvation exists and he is there to help. Think with me now just really briefly about our Savior Jesus Christ. About God come in the flesh to rescue sinners and think about how he is trustworthy. Go down that list of all the things that are true about temptation. We picture her as a woman who's lying to you. Picture Jesus as someone who does not lie to you. Someone who is true in every area where temptation is not. Temptation doesn't play fair. She promises one thing, but she hides her motives. But Jesus emptied himself of the privileges of heaven. He took the form of a servant for us. He subjected himself to death, even death on a cross. Jesus held nothing back from you. He didn't have a dishonest bone in his body or an insincere word on his lips. The woman in this chapter offered her body, but she held back her heart. Jesus offered up both, fully and freely, to die in your place and to show you love that you did not deserve. I'm asking you right now, isn't it then possible for you to stand against temptation knowing that you are loved that much? Doesn't the love of Jesus deserve your attention more than whatever empty pleasure in the world you've been flirting with? We talked about how temptation lies in wait everywhere. Well, Jesus stands patiently at the door of your heart knocking, waiting to come in and eat with whoever invites him. The devil prowls prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour, but Jesus came to seek and to save the ones who are lost. Temptation works to mock holiness, to call us away from the light, but the purity of Jesus shines a light into the darkness of our hearts. It convicts us of sin. Jesus doesn't remind us of God's holy standard. He does that, but not just that. He fulfills it. He fulfills God's holy standard in our place. He offers us his righteousness as a gift, a free trade, for our sins that he nailed to the cross. Sin drags us down away from the light, but Jesus calls us up to a life in the presence of our God. Temptation flatters. Jesus never did that. He humbles us. No one comes to the Father except through him, and no one comes to Jesus except by way of the cross. Temptation tells us there are no consequences, and then it makes promises it can't back up. Jesus reminds us that there are consequences for sin, and they are real, and they are to be feared, but then he offers to take that fear away. In him, every one of God's promises is kept, in the shedding of his blood, in his victory over death. The only way to truly be prepared to face temptation is to desire what is good more than you desire what is tempting you. Keep the commandments as the apple of your eye. Write them on your heart. Call God's wisdom your true sister. Call Jesus Christ the true lover of your soul, your salvation and your glory, and then you'll be prepared to defend against the onslaught of lies that comes. Now, should we expect to stand perfectly against sin all the time? No. At least not yet. But we should want to. Shouldn't we? When we see how awesome Jesus is, when we get a taste of God's goodness, it should break our hearts that we would ever give up any of that for the poisoned apples and the fool's gold and the second-rate imposters that temptation keeps selling us. Someone said that the difference between an unconverted man and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other one has none but that one takes part with his cherished sins against God and the other takes part with God against his hated sins. So which side are you on in the battle of your life? Do you take up arms with Christ and battle against sin and temptation? Standing firm on the ground that the cross has purchased? Or are you sabotaging the Holy Spirit's purpose of holiness in your life by secretly sneaking supplies to the enemy? If you're you're at all familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, either the books or the movies, you might recall one of the fiercest battles that takes place in that story. It's called the Battle of Helm's Deep. Here's the situation. The forces of humanity are on the run. They've taken shelter in this great castle. And marching towards them is this uncountable, unstoppable army of darkness, an army bred to extinguish the light of men. They have the castle walls to protect them, but they are hopelessly outnumbered, and they know it. Now, on the night before the battle, unexpected help comes in the form of new allies. Elves have come to fight alongside the men. Sorry, I'm getting a little misty-eyed just thinking about it, but okay. Anyway, even with the extra help, they are still hopelessly outnumbered when the battle begins. The enemy begins scaling up the walls and breaking down the doors, and the people fight and they fight, and long past the point where there seems any hope of victory, still they fight for their very lives. And then they lose. They lose. The walls are overrun. The gate, so long defended, is battered down. The hordes of darkness swarm into the keep. The last survivors are holed up behind the very last door. All is lost. And then the sun begins to rise. And suddenly everyone remembers that their friend Gandalf had said to look for him at the rising of the sun. He had promised to return with help in the morning. And so he does. And victory comes right when it appeared as if all was lost. Listen, they had fought with everything. If they had fought with everything that they had, but there was no help coming, they surely would have died. If they had known help was coming, but they had given up the battle and laid down before their enemies, they surely would have died. Both the fight and the help were absolutely necessary. And that's what I'm telling you is the case when it comes to fighting temptation. There is no way you can win the battle alone. You're not strong enough. But God exists. He helps those who call on him and he has sent help in the form of his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Help is on the way but you have to pick a side and fight. Fight temptation with everything you've got. Stop hiding in the dark. Tell someone where you're weak. Count on them to help you. Store up God's word in your heart. Bind it on your hands. Take it with you wherever you go. Look at the example of that doomed young man in verses 6 to 9 there. Wandering near her corner as the evening darkens to night. By the end of the chapter, that boy will be dead. Ask yourself, where am I the weakest? Where is the darkened street corner in my life? Isn't the love that Jesus has shown you better than what you can possibly find there? Isn't the life with God that Jesus promises the the perfect fulfillment of what you were made for? Isn't that worth fighting for? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'm telling you, if Satan comes knocking on the door of your heart and Jesus opens that door to meet him, that guy is going to tuck tail and run. Because his lies cannot convince anyone who already has what he's promising to buy into them. If you are in Christ, you already have more than this world can ever promise you. Treasure God's goodness and his commandments and who he is. Treasure Jesus Christ. And then everything else won't seem so tempting. Let Jesus be enough for us. Let Jesus be enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we need so much because it exposes what is dark. It exposes the things that we don't want to bring into the light. But Father, thank you that you have graciously revealed yourself to us. That you haven't left us alone in the predicament that we put ourselves in. That you haven't left us with the impossible task of cleaning ourselves up and finding our way back to you. But you took on flesh and you came down in the mess and you found us where we were to seek And to save us. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place, to rescue us from our sin, to atone for our sin with his perfect sacrifice. Thank you that he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave, proving that he was your son, that he did defeat the powers of sin and darkness, that he is greater than the powers that are in this world that we face. Thank you, God that you are real, that you exist, that you remind us again and again that you can be trusted. And forgive us, God, for the times that we have to come to you and confess that we have turned away from you again. That we have given up your great gift and chased after something that does not satisfy. Something that leads us to death. Lord, we come to you again and we ask that you cleanse us of those things. Jesus, that you purify us that you help us to perfectly repent from those things and to desire you instead. Lord, help us as we go through this week to hold Jesus Christ up as the apple of our eye, as the thing that satisfies us, as the one who makes us whole. And lead us not into temptation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.